Hi, and welcome to my show, The Danielle Newnan Podcast, where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. Today's guest is David Baitao, a self-described engineer by trade and very much an artist at heart. David is most famous for his role as co-founder of Mobile App Secret, which allowed people to share messages anonymously. Whilst there was a lot of hype around Secret when it officially launched in 2014, lauded by the press and the tech industry, and with the company raising millions of dollars within just a few months, the company abruptly closed down a little over a year later. Some of the very public criticism David faced at the time was around the $3 million that he and his co-founder each took off the table as part of their Series B deal. And of course, there was the red Ferrari that David bought and which got a lot of column inches when things didn't work out. In this episode, we dig deep into the rise and fall of Secret and some of what David went through during that time, from the exciting high post-launch to the crushing low he felt in having to close the company down. We also discuss how he dealt with the backlash that came with Secret's closure and how his pre- and post-Secret career had seen him work at many of the top tech companies from Google to Medium, Square and Snap. I really appreciate David's candour in this interview. He opens up about a lot of things which many founders would prefer to keep out of public conversation. But in doing so, I believe David will enable others to do the same, to talk about the hard times which come with entrepreneurship. It also gives an insight into David, who he is as a person, not just a founder. And that's exactly why I do these interviews. Here's my conversation with David Baitao. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I always like to go back in the, in the interviews. I like to go back to people's childhoods. So I just want to know, what were you like growing up? Let's see. You know, I think about this a lot, right? I think one of the first things you learn if you, you know, or at least I've learned, if you speak with a therapist, you try anything like that, they, at least the, my experience, they try to get you in touch or allow you to be in touch with who you were when you were younger. I think that... Um, in terms of what made you you and, and to be able to embrace that and, and accept that because I think is, is, is certainly as I've become an adult, you know, I, I may have kind of suppressed some of that. And by that, I can I'm referring to a few things in terms of, you know, how I was as a, as a child. I think one is that I was extremely, um, and this is kind of cliche, but I was extremely curious, obviously. Um, I think what well, we're all, we all come to the world, I think pretty curious, but Throughout my, uh, I guess, formative years through school and whatnot, and, and I'll just brush lightly over, over a few things and then we can dig in if necessary, but I was always reading a book, always reading a magazine, always doing something um, that wasn't what I should have been doing at, at that moment. For example, rather than doing homework or sitting at the dinner table and, and, and you know, just kind of being with family, you know, I always had a magazine, usually a gaming magazine or something like that, because I always wanted to be... I liked being in my world. I liked being at my speed. Uh, you know, you might call that, uh, you know, there is a bit of introversion there. Um, but really, I was, I was just always kind of escaping uh, to, to another world. And whether that was reading fantasy novels or, or playing games or, or whatever, um, that, that was always something that, that I just really, really enjoyed and I prioritized in my life. And I think that's a theme throughout my life, uh, when it, which we can maybe touch on, which uh, to co it comes back to 
um, you know, just the theme of me going whatever in whatever direction seems the most interesting at the time. And, uh, you know, and I'll just say that as a consequence of that as a, as a child, I probably wasn't very, uh, I wasn't very good at school. Um, you know, I, and, and by that, I mean, I, again, I didn't really pay attention to my homework and I only really paid attention if it applied to something that I was either interested in or something that, you know, was relevant in my life at that, at that time. And, and just to give an example, you know, it's like obviously computer like classes or anything that was, um, especially later in school, like, you know, linear algebra and things that I could see that applied to, let's say, 3D graphics or something like that, I was really interested in. So it was kind of like hot and cold um, in that way as a kid. And that led me to, um, you know, just kind of do the things that I wanted to do and, and really follow any passion or hobby or interest that kind of sparked my intrigue. Uh, at that moment. And that, of course, led to just me having a lot, having collected a lot of hobbies and a lot of things as a kid. So I'll stop there. And, and that's just kind of like more of my demeanor and, and the way I approach things. And it's always interesting. I love going back to people's childhoods because you often see such a glimmer of what becomes of them. And I think that's true with you. Um, I heard you once say that you were forced to go your own way when you talk about your kind of younger years. What did you mean by that? as I said, I didn't do very good in school. I think I did like a 2.4 GPA in, in high school. And, and that was dragged down by classes that I didn't really, I guess, apply myself in. And so, at, you know, at some point in my, I don't know, 16, 17, I realized, okay, I'm not going to be able to, um, to go down the path that maybe most people go down where I'm going to get into school. And by the way, I wanted to go to a, um, you know, a game development school. They were very new back then. This was probably back in 1998. Uh, 99 and and I wanted to to there was this one school called DigiPen I think it was one of the first game development kind of colleges and obviously back then people were like what is this this is silly um, but I really wanted to do that but I just didn't have the grades to do it and nor you know let alone go get to a go into a good school and, and do a computer science degree and so I quickly realized that I'd have to figure out my own way to get to the um, to to get to do what I loved uh, you know every single day and and not be living in my, you know, living still at home in my parents' basement, just, just doing it and actually do it and be, try to succeed at it. And so that kind of forced me to, to figure out my own path and to do whatever I could uh, to break into the industry that I, that I wanted to work in. And when, when did you first get into coding? Going back, I, I was really into computer graphics and animation. Like I saw Jurassic Park and I, and I was just floored, I remember, in, in movies like that. And I can't remember exactly what year. I must have been, I must have been pretty young. But I really wanted to do that. And I started with 3D animation and that led me to modding video games like Doom and, and then Quake. And that was, you know, that led me to like level world design. And then I realized, hey, I really want to modify these games. I want to make, you know, change the behavior of the games. And that led me to coding. And that was about when I was like 15 or so. Um, and then I real and then I, it, you know, the interesting thing is that I always found ways to, um, I guess, again, make sure that my day-to-day, -day, uh, I was able to able to code and able to learn and found ways to like include it in my life. Um, just to give a quick example, I started working at a comic shop when I was 17 um, and they had games, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons and they had, um, you know, obviously comics and, and, and all sorts of card games, uh, Magic the Gathering, things like that. And the guy there, the owner, had a storefront, and I was inspired by Amazon at the time. Amazon was still relatively new. And I said, "Hey, I can build you a website." And and actually, I think he said, "Hey, do you know like you know some some technology?" I think it was like CGI, and I was like, "Yeah." And of course, I didn't, but I, I knew I could learn, and so 
um, I signed up and built his website as, and, and I got paid for it. And so that was just the first kind of like way that I was able to actually get paid for coding and, and learn on the job, which I think was the, the best way to, to get good. I've also I've spoken to a lot of um, kind of innovators and tech founders, and they've often said that the moment they discovered coding or the moment they kind of wrote their first line of code, it, it changed their lives and their trajectory. Do you see it as a gift? Do you see it as something that kind of helped you on your way, but not just in terms of career, but life as well? I mean, I could take both sides of the argument here. I think that coding is fun. And it was like, hey, you're able to build something and see something come to life, right? And you're using uh, an abundance of resources. Whereas if you're building something in real life, you're painting or building something, you know, you need wood, you have limited resources. And then having this space where you can just you know, write some code and see something on the screen to, to really no cost to you. And then to be able to see, you know, have other people experience it too. I mean, that was pretty, it's pretty magical moment. Um, but, you know, and, and, and that, that's kind of where it starts. I think it, certainly it changed my life, but I've always seen it as a means to an end. I remember, you know, whenever I was coding, like I had a goal in sight and I never always hit that goal, but I was always inspired by something. And this is what I tell people when they're learning how to, how to code, if they, if they choose to, which is, you know, it's not just, you, you shouldn't just go in like, okay, how do I do this thing? Like, what are the mechanics? It's like, what do you, what do you want to exist? And so in my case, I wanted to build, let's say an online role-playing game. And I was just infatuated, you know, it was just, or I was just fascinated with the fantasy world and the books I read. And so I just wanted to make a game that was like that. And, and I would get out ahead of my skis and like try to code and try to build these things. But in a way that that was, that's what kind of kept me going and, and pushed me forward. And um, so coding has just always been kind of a means to the end of which to, to uh, bring something into the world. And, you know, and it's, and I'll just say, that's something I try to not lose sight of, because I'll tell you that right now, you know, of all the languages that I've learned and all the things that I built through time and coding now is, is pretty straightforward. It's, it's not so much what, it's not how to code. It's like what to code. And if I had this, the, you know, the skills that I have now, like um, I would be so envious of myself at, at 18 years old. Right. And I would be like, Hey, what are you doing? You should be building so many things. And what, you know, don't let the skill you've developed go to waste. And, and I try not to lose sight of that. So you talked about how coding was a means to an end, but obviously games was a great love of yours growing up. And, and your first job, you kind of skipped through college and as in you, you didn't finish it. And then you went to the collective. Is that right? Yeah. So um, that's that's partially true. There's a little bit of history that I guess is left out from, I don't know, my LinkedIn or other profile, but essentially I had been, you know, again, this is just a matter of forcing, kind of forcing my own reality, which is I was making games on the side, meaning while I was in community college um, and working, building websites, I tried to make, you know, I was making little games and I found a small little startup in, in the West Coast called Codefire and I reached out to um, you know, so the, the webmaster. And I said, Hey, your website sucks. Like, let me help you. <laughs> and, uh, he's like, sure enough. And so I, I started helping, but then his brother was the CEO and I said, Hey, you know, I also code games. And so he's like, really? And so they offered me like 40,000 a year and said, come on out. And, and I talked with my, one of my professors and he's like, yeah, why not go for it? Go to Irvine. And I did. And that lasted about seven months. The company had folded. It was a quick startup, but that helped me get a little bit of experience. I actually went back then to Indiana and two months later got a job at the collective because I had a little bit of, of experience and was able to land a, a proper mid-level programmer job at a, at a 
actual, you know, real game studio. And with Collective, what, what, I mean, I knew you were obviously um, an engineer there. You were working on games like Star Wars. What was your experience like there? How long were you there for? Yeah, I was there for about six or seven years. My experience, I can, I mean, look, it was a great experience. Video games, you know, you got to really love it. You put in, oh man, so many hours. There was one point I was putting 90 hours, if they're, you know, in a, you know, in a week building this game, the Da Vinci Code. I was lead programmer. You know, I was always wanting to prove myself that I was a real programmer. And so I'd always put a lot of effort into it and spend a lot of time building it, but I absolutely loved it. And the da- the, the dark side of it was that, you know, I was um, not taking care of myself. I, I ate horribly, drank soda, and you know, I guess cliche, you know, old school game developer type of, um, uh, well, cliches, I guess. Um, and uh, and so that was one aspect of it. But the other aspect I'll highlight is just like it was just a lot of fun to be able to build these games, uh, work with a great work with great teams. I had an amazing mentor, um, my friend Nathan, who remains my friend to this day, and. He taught me so much because I had so many gaps to fill because, again, I did not have that formal background in coding. I did not, or computer science, rather. I, the fundamentals I had to rebuild on my own, and I had strong people like Nathan to, to kind of help me do that. Um, but um, that's really where I got a lot of my, I just spent hours and hours and hours coding um, and putting the time and effort. And that was that was just such a fun time. It's like a dream now that I think back because it was in you know Southern California and and I was young and and um, but uh, that 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 was that was good. So you you were pay, like you said you were paving your own way, um, but then something changed because Google came knocking, didn't they? And I think I from what I've um, learned about you and what you've said today is obviously that you were constantly trying to prove yourself because you didn't have the traditional training, and especially for a company like Google. I've known many people to interview there and fail on the most, you know, ridiculous of things. They're tough. So how did Google happen? Yeah, quickly, I'll I'll say that, you know, I put in my resume once, um, had my school in there. It was like a year of college and they never called me back. Now, this is not, there's probably correlation, not causation, but I, six months later, took out the education portion for my resume and sent it back in and I got a call back. Um, And, you know, I don't know if they assumed I'd left it out or whatever, but in any case, uh, I did a phone interview screen and, and, and this was the moment, right? Like, like Eminem says, like life comes down to a few moments. Was it Eminem? I don't know. I just knew this was what I needed, you know, to be able to get this job would be amazing. It proved to me, okay, I'm actually an engineer. So I studied, I mean, it's very simple. Like, you know, at that time there wasn't, I mean, there was, I don't think YouTube, I don't remember, maybe it was new, but, um, you know, I remember just studying as much as I could. I did, I did all these on, you know, I basically did what I should, you know, what, as if like I applied myself to school, but I was like spending six hours a day, just writing code, like doing solving problems, like getting ready for the interviews. Cause I knew what they, the shape and form of them were. I knew it was whiteboard interviews and things like that. And so I just, um, man, I was, I was just obsessed with, with, with writing code and and preparing for these interviews and I wrote an article about this a while back back then called ABC always be coding and you know resonated with a ton of people because you know I outlined exactly what I did and how I approached it Um, and the long and short of is that like I just put in the time to prepare those interviews were great I mean I there was I was super prepared more prepared than I've probably been for almost anything um, that I can remember of that nature. And I felt, I felt good about it. And when they gave me the callback, I basically immediately accepted the offer. Now, this is where it kind of takes a tricky turn. I'll just highlight, this is one of several, you know, you never know how life is going to pan out. But 
at that time, I was also interviewing at this company that was in Culver City. It was a small company, and uh, they were working on a game that was actually a clone of, a, of another game. And there were these two guys, they, were in, um, they, they weren't coders, but they were more of business, I guess I would call it. And two amazing founders, um, Mark and Brandon, they tried to, uh, really, really tried to, to hire me. They, they were so kind and took me out to steak dinner and put me up in a hotel and got me this guitar, all these things to hire me. And ultimately I said, no, I'm like, no way, like Google, gotta go to Google. Um, anyway, that company turned out to be Riot Games, which ended up being one of the largest video game, building biggest game in the world, which was League of Legends. And so, you know, that was one thing where I'm like, okay, well, at least I got, you know, I'm still happy I got to go to Google, despite um, perhaps having uh, been able to be a, a part of something like Riot Games. But that, that was one one interesting fork in the road for my life. Mm, it's interesting though, because you think at that time that at 19, 20, whatever, early 20s, that the going the kind of gaming route would have been it for you. But actually, from what I've heard since, Google was quite formative, well, very formative, because it actually made you feel like, yeah, I don't need the degree, you know, I've made it, I, I kind of proved myself, which it had, right? And so what, what was the kind of work that you were doing at Google? Did you start on Google Wave? Was that the right No, thing? almost. I started with my, my manager, Rich Burden, amazing guy um, at Google. He was working on a, on a project, uh, the Google Mashup Editor, that was canceled right after I joined the team, um, you know, through some reorg. And so we had to find a home. And then that ended up being Google Wave. And I worked on Google Wave for a while, which was, you know, quite an interesting um, product. If people remember, it was kind of rather... And it was new. It was the first time you could see people typing in a browser at the same time. It was insane for that year and time. And so I um, uh, was on part of that. And I, eventually I saw the, the writing on the wall that the launch wasn't going as, as planned, even though there was a ton of hype and, and people wanted it to succeed. Um, so I, I left that project and, and ended up joining Google Plus. But Google Wave was, was an interesting moment. I would say that most of my projects at Google were failed social consumer products, um, but I... Uh, enjoyed working on them and they were pretty exciting and people enjoyed them um, but ultimately they did fail. In terms of Google Plus that was something that did fail and and a lot of people kind of saw the writing on the wall I guess with that. How, how was it leading the team there and what what were the issues? Yeah so I led the pages and profile team in fact this is where I worked um, well, I I'd initially worked on the plus one button. The, the major issue with this is I mean it was a mandate, right? It was, it was a, it was a top down. Like we must compete with Facebook. Um, like why would we build a social network? Well, if we build a social network, then we understand more about our users. And then if we understand more about our users, users, then we can serve better ads, right? That was the fear that Facebook would have this leverage over, over Google. And I'm simplifying it when there's a lot more to go into it, but essentially that was it. And so we had this mandate. And so it wasn't a bottom up, kind of like, hey, we're building this social network because, you know, we, you know, this is, we have all these features, we have this thing, it's, it's unique, it's different. No, it was mostly a Facebook clone. And that's, that's obviously a classic problem, but we felt, well, Google scale and marketing power, maybe we could make that work. Ultimately, it didn't work. And that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way at Google internally, where, you know, half the company, and, and I'm exaggerating probably, but, you know, would ask, ask very publicly often, why are we doing this? Um, but the team internally felt pretty energized. We had all the resources we needed and we were building it and able to really do what we wanted. And that was fun. And I got to work with great people. I mean, for example, I worked with, uh, you know, you, you interviewed Andy Hertzfeld and uh, what a lovely guy. And we, mm. we got to work together pretty closely and, and we liked each other. And, I, and I, he was just a lot of fun to work with. And we were trying to trying to build something new and different on the profiles team. But 
we were unable to really get that traction because we really needed to, they weren't really about taking risks for that product. In terms of if you would say why it failed, obviously trying to compete against Facebook. I mean, Google is not used to being the underdog. Do you think there was a almost conceit like, you know, we're going to do this because we're Google? Or do you feel what were the kind of issues that made it fail? Yeah, I think that's one of them. But you have to go back to the root of like, why, why does this thing need to exist? Why do people need two things that essentially do the same thing? You know, and we see this every day. We see many, many products that never even get off the ground because, you know, we already have Instagram, let's say. We already have, you know, whatever. You need to, you really need a differentiator uh, for people to, to pay attention and to give it time. And now, again, if Google did not have the marketing power and name brand of Google, I, uh, you know, and they were, you know, someone was building Google Plus from the ground up, we probably would have never heard about it. I think that's what it goes back to, which is, you know, if you just take a step back and look at, well, as a consumer, why, why am I, why would I do this? And, and so it's, you know, it was, a, it was a solution to a problem that didn't need to be solved because Facebook was already solving it. So how long were you at Google for? About four and a half years. And because it was so formative for you and it was something that you, you felt, you know, was proving the point that you could do this. How did you end up leaving? So I left because, you know, Google Plus, again, I saw the writing on the wall. I joined YouTube, YouTube for a day. I, you know, I remember when I said I was leaving, I, I, I talked with a bunch of VPs, um, you know, the, you know Android or, or YouTube or whatever. And I joined YouTube and I remember going into the office. It was a different building in a different place, not in Mountain View. And just, it just felt really, again, I'm not, I'm not just trying to disparage YouTube. They've done amazing work, but it just, the vibe felt very, especially compared to Google Plus, just low key. And, um, you know, people were kind of chilling. It didn't feel like I had that sense of urgency. And so I'm like, you know what, I want to be a part of something exciting again. And that's when I interviewed at Medium and, and Square, thinking I was going to take the job at Medium, which I did briefly, but it ultimately ended up at Square. And, and I was excited to do that because I, I felt I learned so much at Google that to be able to take that learning and apply it to something smaller and smaller scale um, would be really exciting. You mentioned about YouTube for a day and Medium was, like you said, a month. There is this kind of theme here with you that you'll often do things and it'll be maybe for short periods of time. And I've read that you've said that, you know, constraints are really important to you. What was it about Square that kind of excited you? Well, I think initially, so again, initially, I thought I was going to go to Medium because it just seemed more interesting. It was a, you know, it was a consumer product and Square felt, you know, again, something I couldn't really connect to. Um, I went to Medium, you know, I talked with Jack, uh, Jack Dorsey, uh, you know, and Ev Williams initially when I was deciding between the two. And Jack gave me a pretty good story about, you know, about Square and um, about its mission. And I was quite impressed, but I had a friend at Medium who I worked with at Google. And so that's ultimately why I decided to go to Medium. But as I was there, I was like, you know, this is interesting. It's, it's a cool product, but I couldn't get it out of my mind. Like the like Square just felt bigger, not bigger, sorry, that's, that's the wrong word. It felt like it just, it just felt like there was going to be more of a challenge there, I, I guess. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying Medium's not challenging by any means. They're, they were both great companies, but what happened was that I'd heard that they had this big, um, and maybe I'm getting the timeline wrong, but anyway, Star Square had this big project with Starbucks and it was a big integration where they were, you know, they're going to integrate with us fully. And I, and I remember either, either Jack or someone said, Hey, come help us with this. And I was like, I can do that. And that I just jumped into this big project that seemed almost impossible. Um, 
you know, and, and, and ended up leading that project and completing it. Um, but that's what drew me to Square initially. And what was the project that you did at Square? That particular it, was, it was that Starbucks project initially, and then that ended up, ended up for me to get promoted to director of infrastructure. And then we reorged the entire company very quickly. And I ended up kind of, um, you know, on the, on the executive team representing engineering and then also taking over the Square Wallet team, which was a product uh, that, that ultimately shut down, but was an interesting product. And from there, um, seeded the idea of Square Cash um, to Square, uh, which, you know, which was kind of... Um, I, just to kind of touch on this kind of because it's interesting to me um, and hopefully interesting. And that is it. I remember having dinner one night with Chris, um, Chris Bader, who would later be my co-founder at Secret. And, um, and yet we worked together at Google. And he was saying that, hey, Gmail's, you know, maybe testing, you know, something around, you know, uh, sending money or sending some, something of that nature. And I, I can't remember exactly, you know, what he said or if, if that was even it. And it just spawned the, the idea in my head of sending money over email, um, not just Gmail, but any email. And so I walked up to Jack the next day and I'm like, hey, pay by email. And he's like, what? <laughs> and so, and I'm like, listen, here, imagine you, I just send you mail by emailing or send you money by emailing you. And from there, Square Cash was, was born. And, you know, we convinced the, not convinced the board, we told the board we were going to do this thing and explained it. And I remember Larry Summers, who's what, former secretary of treasury, I guess. And, and obviously he's got, in the U.S., he's, he's fairly well known in, in him saying, hey, you know, uh, I think that, uh, well, we had two projects that we pitched. Uh, Square Cash is one of them. And then there's this other one that was kind of like a delivery thing. And he's like, hey, look, this delivery thing, I don't know. But this Square Cash thing, I think 10 years from now, this could be something we look back and go, wow, we're glad we, we, we did that thing. And um, obviously Square Cash, the team took it and ran with it after, after I had even left and ultimately built Cash App. And, um, and here we are today. That's fantastic. And so while you were at Square, you obviously learned a lot from Jack, and I know you kind of saw him as a bit of a mentor. What were some of the most kind of important lessons you think you learned from him? Yeah, I think, well, I think the main one is just simplification of things. Um, Jack, and, and I wish I'd learned more at the time, been more receptive to to some things, because I think I would have maybe done things a bit differently in my life, um, for better, for worse. Can I interject? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So for example, I think even leaving Square, um, you know, I kind of, you know, you pointed at this uh, where I kind of stay at places maybe for a short time. I think I had a lot of short-term thinking or rather I was very impulsive with when I saw a challenge or a new thing um, that I, that I saw as a challenge that I could try and overcome and prove to myself that I could do, I would jump after it. And um, maybe I should have kind of taken the long view a little bit. And I think Jack's very good at that. He's very good at being still when uh, there's chaos around him. Um, I think we can, we've seen that, you know, through obviously most recently with, with all the trials and tribulations that Twitter has gone through. And um, yeah, I think that was one of the biggest, biggest personal things that I've tried to do and incorporate more into my life is to take more of a longer view and to pause and let things kind of fall into place without trying to force things um, if that makes any sense. I think Jack is one of those people that in time to come, people are going to look back, not people that have worked closely with him like you, but the kind of wider world are going to look back and, and realize that they underestimated him. He seems to be like one of the most important entrepreneurs of our time. And yet he's widely kind of underestimated, I think. When you were working at Square, 
did was that where you started thinking about doing your own kind of work doing your own starting your own company that's right i think that jack did instill a sense of jack and just the company in general instilled a sense of yeah wanting to actually go off and do my own thing i never and i always wanted to but i never knew how and the answer to that is well there's no how you just kind of do it and you know and i'm sure you know this too is is you you know you're you're doing this podcast and do these things you just you just do it you don't ask for permission there's no setup you know and so on and so forth that's that's ultimately what i wanted to do um, and I just I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and long story short, I tried to start a company with four or three other um, square colleagues of mine. We tried to build a company um, that didn't really that that didn't go well. I ended up leaving that. You know, I, I built Secret. It just kind of it was just a little thing that I a little art project that I done on the side. I was just going to say, before we go into secret, I just wanted, there's one story that I've heard about um, you and these three kind of co-founders, which I found really interesting was, can you just explain what, how you came up with ideas? Because I know Angel List is involved and I just wanted you to explain because I think it's really interesting. Well, what we did, we had a process of trying to come up with an idea where we were constantly whiteboarding things. I, I don't remember. I mean, did Angel List exist at that point? I assume so. I th- yeah, I think because I heard you say, now it might because timing's always funny when you look back, but yeah. my understanding was that you were looking at ideas That's and right. you and these co-founders were going through Angelus and then almost like pitching the ideas to each other oh, yeah. to see which one sounded good. That's right. That's right. We 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 essentially did that is we went, we were all over the map, but I remember I used Angelus a lot and in, in, I guess I, I, I've done it before when I've like tried to get ideas and because there's a lot of great ideas out there. There's just, it's not always the right execution or the, or, or whatever. And so yeah, we, we were constantly pitching each other. We tried to build this little social app called Gather. We played with that a bit. You know, it was just four kind of hardcore engineering type people trying. <laughs> well, we'd, we ended up trying to build this like, you know, app for teens or something like that, a social network. And I was like, I was just tired of that. And I don't know if that's fair, but, um, you know, I, I wasn't sure that was going to work. Um, but we definitely pitched each other on a whole bunch of things. And just nothing really stuck. And that's just not how you do it, I don't think. Mm-hmm. I think that was the wrong way. I think the better way, or I should have like, if there's something I was passionate about, like build a little demo of it or or try it, you know, give us ourselves some space and then show it versus like talking about ideas at the highest possible level. Mm, a lot of people, you know, I think try and kind of fix a the problem they have. But there's also this kind of crop in the last 10 years of, you know, accelerators where they focus on ideas that might already exist and how they can better them or grouping people together that have never met but might have complementary skills. So I think mm-hmm. however we thought uh, starting a company should be, it, it's changing over time. But I did interrupt you. So what? So how did you come up with the idea of a secret? So I remember, um, I mentioned this before, I think, I've, I've yeah, I've certainly talked about this, and that is that my girlfriend at the time was traveling and I wanted to, you know, I'm like, well, I can't send her flowers. And so I, um, I built this little app that essentially uh, replicated the idea of sending flowers, which to me, flowers were something that you send, you don't ask for anything in return. They're kind of a one-way gift and uh, they only last, they're transient, they only last a short amount of time. It's about giving someone that emotion and that feeling of feeling loved or cared for, or, or they could be obviously flowers for sad events as well. And so I built this app that allowed you to send a message, you know, over SMS and they would get a link and they'd click it and a message would appear. And then they could, you know, it would kind of fade in and appear and say some words. And then 
it would show an emotion that you could pick about how that made you feel, you know, happy, sad, whatever. And then it would just disappear. And that was it. Super simple and easy. And obviously that's not what Secret ended up being, but I used, uh, there was that. And I also wanted to learn the Go programming language at that point. And so I was like, all right, again, I wanted to learn something and I wanted something to exist. And so I paired the two and built this little thing in about, about a week or so. Um, and then I ended up showing that to Chris and that's when things got, uh, got serious. And Chris was your co-founder. How did you meet Chris? How we met at Google. Him? Actually, um, he became a PM and, and Google Plus while I was there and he joined um, my team. And so what was the original mission? So you sat down with Chris, you showed him the idea. Presumably he was thinking it was a good idea too. What was the kind of mission that you had for it? It was authenticity. I mean, obviously at first it was just like, hey, this was a cool experience, right? There's nothing really too, too much to it. But then it was like, well, you know, you start to revise, not revise history, you start to think about... Um, you start to, at least for me, romanticize it, right? And it was like, well, this is this thing that we can we can be authentic with each other and tell people how we feel and make them feel good by sending these messages. And so the mission was to be able to, you know, say things that you wouldn't normally say on social media and directly um, through anonymity, essentially that, to make people feel good, um, you know, and, and to be able to communicate with them uh, in, in that way. Um, and th so there wasn't, you know, it was no broad mission, right? Um, I would say that, and maybe I'm jumping ahead, but when we, when, you know, obviously with this kind of product, it's, it can be hard, right? Because it's, you're sending anonymous messages to people and we built this app. It was pretty, we really pride ourselves in making a beautiful little app. And, um, you know, we, we tried to get funding for it, but of course the, the fear was bullying and, and that kind of thing. And you could send messages to anyone and say, you know, whatever, like I'm in your house. I don't know. It's something mm. crazy. Um, and so we had to, we kind of had to stop and retool. Um, and uh, ultimately, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, I remember we were, you know, we'd always go to this park and look, I, we may have competing views, me and Chris, I remember me saying it, I don't, maybe he remembers him saying it, it doesn't matter. Um, but one of us said, hey, what if you could uh, message, you know, send out a thing to your, to everyone in your, you know, your contact a message to everyone, the broadcast and not target someone. And so that was uh, what kind of created the idea for Secret, where you could just kind of broadcast to, anonymously to your to your friends. Um, and and we built that and gave it to our friends, and and then you know they liked it and enjoyed it. And so ultimately, and, I'll, and the reason I was on this thread, kind of jumping ahead, was you know I remember just going back to to Jack. I remember showing him the app, and you know this is when it was still before it was released, and you know he and I expected him to go, oh this is silly or whatever. And he scrolls through and he goes. And he said, like, hey, this could breed more self-awareness in the world. And I was like, what? Um, and, you know, I didn't know what he meant even at the time. And then I started to realize and think about it. And that kind of became our mission is to just create um, create more awareness and ultimately self-awareness um, through an app like Secret, which may sound crazy. Everything, you know, can always look differently back, you know, when you have hindsight. And I think, you know, uh, this is why I wanted to know what your mission was, because I think it's so easy to see something in the world. I mean, I remember when Clubhouse got funding yeah. last year in the middle of a pandemic and the amount of people that came out on Twitter and were just slamming the fact that anything could get funding during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, you know what, you're not actually, you're looking at it what it might be for you and you're thinking it's just silly or it's this, but for other people, it's a, you know, and I've seen people say since that Clubhouse and the communities that they've built on that were 
you know, testament to what the clubhouse mission was. It really like helped them through some tough times because it was bringing people together in a way that physically we couldn't. Mm. So I think with hindsight, we can say, oh, you know, that was a mission. It seems silly now, but I think it's always good to know people's true intentions. And I think that doesn't always come out in the press or the way things are spoken about. So it's always good to know. Um, so with Secret, obviously it didn't go the way that you planned. Uh, and I know fundraising, I think people often criticize at the time that you'd had too much money. Looking back now, what do you feel about those early days? Is there something you would have done differently or do you think it played out the way that it was going to play out? Like, is there anything you've learned since then that you think I should have done that differently? Right. Um, so this could obviously, this topic alone could fill probably hours and, mm-hmm. uh, and a book, I would say, at least in my mind. Um, would you do a book? Um, you know, it's, Chris and I have talked about it. Um, you know, we talked about even possibly co-authoring one or something like that. I've sat down a little bit, but um, I mean, I would. Um, is it a good idea? I don't know. Um, you know, it would have to be something where I'm like, you know, I just want to do it for myself. Mm. Um, and then hopefully it would be have a lot of good lessons in it. But since then, I've just tried to, you know, I'm doing I do my I know jumping ahead in my YouTube channel and things like that, where I just kind of talk about stuff that based on what I've learned, um, because I think that, um, you know, and it was cliche, but I wish I would have learned some of these things um, prior to Secret. And, and I look back and I'm, and I kind of want to scold myself a little bit for some of the ways that I did, I acted and did things. But as far as the things that, I mean, there's many things I would have done differently. And I'll just highlight, again, Secret was an art project. It really was. And it just kind of took off despite us really even trying to to push it or you know we we never expected that kind of reaction i think i never fundraising i think that uh, it was easy to we never stepped foot in a boardroom except for the initial version of secret and i'm pretty sure maybe we did once or twice but anyway it was it was very easy to 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 get money for this because people thought it would it could be the next big you know thing next facebook or whatever obviously that's great for the investor and i think um whatever long it's a long shot I think we actually did need the money. I, I don't think the money was was really an issue. Um, you know, we we were growing fast. We had tons of users. We were we had to spend um, you know on infrastructure. Um, we had to we had to hire. We had to do market. It was a lot of things, and so it was good to at least have have that money. And and you know, I think we initially raised eight million, and then quickly that that wasn't enough. And then so we raised twenty five million after that. I would say maybe the valuation was a bit too high, right? Because and this ultimately led to why I decided to shut it down, which was that once we realized things weren't going well, at least I did, and we started having to rethink about, okay, well, do we want to continue with Secret to build something else? And, um, you know, by this point, Chris had left um, and we were kind of stagnating and growth in the US and other competitors were, were growing, which they ultimately failed as well, like yik yak. Um, uh, you know, I just felt like I, this wasn't the thing that I'd wanted to build. I, I wasn't in love with it. And I'm not sure I was ever in love with it, to be perfectly honest, although I, I'm grateful for, for what it was. You can't have a $120 million valuation and start from zero and have all the history of a product that you've, you know, that, that you've tried to build and try to grow into that valuation. And also it becomes much harder to be acquired, right? Because investors want at least their money's worth back or whatever they valued it at. So we're kind of stuck in a rough spot there. And so I kind of, I do wish maybe we wouldn't have jumped a bit too fast on the valuation. And, and at that point, and even today, like I think a lot of people still look at valuation as some sort of 
I don't know, success metric or validation. Um, and so that was certainly at the highest level, one of the biggest mistakes. But I mean, Danielle, like there's so, there's just so many things. I, I, it's hard to even touch on one thing with Secret, but, um, you know. And, and well, we look forward to the book then, Dave. I think you should write the book because I think you're right. There are so many lessons. But one thing, because I wanted to clear up, there are a few things when I was doing my research, but obviously I, we talked before this started recording and I've been following you for years. And I do feel like cancel culture wasn't a thing back at the time that you were doing secret. Well, it wasn't as a thing recognized kind of by everyone as it is now. But I felt that journalists and some in particular were really going after you. And, you know, because obviously the app wasn't quite what you expected. And maybe you could have seen it coming if you'd had, like you said, more time to breathe. But it became gigantic it became huge and you had millions of users very early on which I'm guessing you weren't necessarily expecting and so it took off before you had time to write the manual so to speak so what like if you think back to that time a how did you feel like because at the moment you realize the company's not necessarily working then you're getting slammed by certain uh corners what was it doing to your kind of mental state were you just focused on trying to salvage something or were you like I want out of this um I will say a couple of things there. First of all, I think it's natural that, you know, the, the press in reaction to, you know, companies, especially companies that are growing and or in under the spotlight is pretty cyclical. Like you get it, you know, initially we had a lot of positive feedback that overwhelmed or positive uh, press that overwhelmed any negative. And then, you know, kind of the tone changes and there's a bunch of negative press that comes out and, it, it, you know, companies just go through that through time. Secrets lifetime is pretty short. And so we only had like one cycle essentially, um, which was a bunch of positive and then a bunch of negative and then kind of indifference a little bit. And it was tough, right? I think that um, for one, initially the, the initial kind of, big stories that, you know, came out, Hey, like secret, maybe it's not what it's all cracked out to be. Um, I thought the piece was unfair. It was about secret, not about me. Um, you know, at least one of these pieces and I, and I kind of provoked it by, you know, tweeting it at the authors of the piece. And that really kind of set the, um, I guess I poked the bear, so, so to speak, and then it became personal. And, you know, from there, there were a slew of, of stories that had come out, many of which I think were unfair um, because it somewhat lost the plot of, of what they were going after. And, and what I mean by that is initially they were pointing out, hey, there could be bullying and there could be even suicide on, or led to suicide on, on a product like this. And, and that might be true. I, I think that there's something there and we should have had a conversation about that and, and talked about, well, what are we doing at Secret, right, to, to, to combat that? But then it became personal about, well, the CEO like doesn't care about it and so on and so forth. And that just kind of... Um, it just muddied the conversation a bit. Um, and it, it, it was unclear to me, um, you know, what it, it just felt very personal at, at the time, perhaps maybe because I did kind of push back a little bit. Um, and yeah, that was really, really tough, but still I had a team at my back and we were, we were building this product and I, and I felt um, supported. So, uh, you know, at that, at the point, at that point, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, too, too, maybe I just didn't understand. I didn't see how much of a, how much of a problem, like it, you know, maybe I, I, I'd created, um, in, in, in pushing some of that stuff. And then of course there were other things I, you know, my, my father, I'll just say real quick, my, you know, <laughs> growing up, I remember my, my grandfather and my dad were, 
you know, they love cars, but they, you know, they love, they especially love like, you know, Ferrari and these sorts of things. And I remember when I left and, you know, went out West, I was, <laughs> told my dad, like, Hey, one day I'm going to buy a Ferrari and I'm going to fly you out and we're going to drive. And, you know, it's that kind of thing, right. To, you know, I want to make my dad proud and, you know, secret and, and per perhaps I shouldn't have, or, or not. I think you could take, argue both sides, but, you know, I went and bought a, you know, red Ferrari because I could, um, you know, through, through the fundraising part of, of secret and that <laughs> much of the press did did not like that right you have a polarizing app you have this this founder who is you know perhaps doesn't care about all the you know the the bad stuff on the platform um which which of course was was, was not true um but and then is often going about it for it's just not a good look and i think you know i i think i um you know i kind of i kind of asked for it in that regard but yeah, I'm, it, it was, it was, it was a lot. Right. And when I look back, it's like, wow, you know, I could have slowed down a little bit or, or whatever, or taken a different stance. And I'm, and I'm, you know, at some points I do feel not just regret, but a little bit of humiliation over it, but Hey, you know, um, it's, it was a learning experience and um, ultimately it's how I ended up going, why I ended up going to Bridgewater, but that's a whole other story. But um, I, um, it was tough. I'll say it was, it was really, it was, it was difficult. And I mostly felt bad for the team, right? I wanted to do right by them. I wanted to build a great product. And ultimately it ended up, the product ended up failing. I think even despite the press had really no, I don't think had much of an impact on that. It was just that the product was flawed and it was hard to grow. And, um, you know, but I, but I, I wanted, I wanted to make the team proud. And I think I let them down in, in ways that I did not understand at the time. I think what you've just said, everything you've just said is really quite interesting because I think, getting to the bottom of that red Ferrari actually was one of my questions because I think I do these interviews in part to inspire and empower kind of others because they take the lessons on board like you were saying earlier about not having those lessons previous to setting up secret but I think also there's always a story behind what the founder does or the way they are and sometimes people are quick to judge that so like the Ferrari was something that people really picked up on and actually your story about you know again it was almost like trying to prove yourself to your dad and I, and you know I've read about you and your dad and the relationship you have and and I know that your dad was you know you know not a hundred percent you know as in he'd been sick and I think what people don't understand is there is often, you know, a method to people's madness. You had this in your head as a goal, which I think a lot of young men do. Like, it's not unheard of that someone says, oh, I'm going to get a sports car with my first huge paycheck. And you worked your ass off to get to the point where you were, where you were building secret. So I don't think, you know, even though you said you mentioned humiliation and whatever else, I think you did everything that your heart felt was right at the time. And often when we look back, we can say, okay, that really wasn't the right thing. Mm. But we live our lives in public now and it's, you know, and you were scrutinized. So thank you for sharing that with us. I think that's really important. Um, one of the kind of quotes I heard that you said after Secret was that innovation requires failure. And I believe in failing fast in order to go on and make only new and different mistakes. Do you feel like that now? Do you feel like you're constantly learning? Yeah, I think, well, let me just say real quick, going back to something you said, so I can just correct the record. Um, so uh, I think it was my grandfather that, that was sick at the time. My, my dad is, is thankfully healthy and, 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 and young and vibrant and and I love him more than anything in the world. And yes, I do want to make him proud, of course. Um, uh, and so that, that, that might've been the thing you wanted to pick up. I just wanted to, to clarify that. Okay, case, thank, case yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, I, I do believe that. I think that 
I mean, I have a whole, <laughs> I was writing a book on, on the principles of, of software engineering and stuff. And, and I, and I still intend to, um, and one of the chapters was on failure, I think, or making mistakes. Um, I look at it like, like a video game. Uh, it's pretty simple. I think, um, and, and this is something that I embrace. And that is, you know, for, for some reason, when we make mistakes in a video game, we're playing, I don't know, Mario or something like that, you, you die and you, you, you just, you learn from that, right? Like you go, oh, okay, I don't, I don't jump there. I don't do that. I, you know, then you go back and you, you, you just press on, but you don't feel any shame for it. You feel nothing. You feel, you, you know, you might get annoyed. You might throw your controller down and get upset, but you don't, you don't feel like, man, I, I really screw that up. And that's interesting because in life, I think a lot of people, when we fail or when we make a mistake, it's almost, we, we, we hate to admit it. We don't look at it. We don't analyze it. And so therefore we don't really learn from it. And I think that's the real, that's the real um, shame of making a mistake and not pushing on and, and carrying forward. And, and in fact, and then, you know, the other realization I had is, is the, what I mean by new mistakes is that, you know, again, similar when you're playing a game like Mario or, or whatever, um, you know, you learn something, you, you learn a new way of, of, of passing, you know, completing a level, the game does, it's not, you don't expect the game to get easier, right? It, it's, it's not like, okay, well, that's it. You know, you're just going to carry on. It's going to get harder. And you, you know that and you, you're, you're developing the skills to, to kind of, to, to carry on and to, to, to go even further. And I think that's also the same when you're building something or when you're going, you know, in life in general, that you have to be ready that like, Hey, you know, yeah, you overcame that or you learned a lesson from that, but there are going to be new things and, and you're going to make more mistakes and you have to be okay with that. And, and anyway, there's a whole bunch of stuff to unpack there, um, obviously separately. And, um, you know, there's, there's like this, you could take a stoic view of it. You can take all sorts of different perspectives on, on failure, but I think that was essentially um, something that, that I think made me feel better. Um, and, and also was kind of a way of, of saying like, look, yes, these things happened, but, um, let's try not to do that again. Let's learn from it and, um, be ready for the next set of things, um, so that you can react to it and deal with it a little bit better. And then from, so once you decided that secret was no longer, uh, what was your next step? What did you, I know you took some time off, didn't you? I did. I, I, was, I took six months off and did nothing. Um, and, and by nothing, I thought I was going to, you know, build something or do whatever. But I was really, I, you know, I went to New York. I would fly. My brother, my younger brother, Jason, was working at Secret. And um, so obviously when I shut everything down, um, you know, he was he was trying to find, you know, a new role and, and things of that nature. And so, you know, I flew him out to New York and we just kind of just hung out and I didn't really do too much. And this is when I fell in love with New York, I'll say that. It was a much needed break. And then when did Bold, because I remember trying to, to get on to Bold and I couldn't because I needed a Mac at the time. But what, 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 how did Bold come about? Yeah, so that was my old co-founder, um, Ben, uh, or not co-founder, he became my co-founder. He was a lead designer of Secret. He, uh, he and I actually did a brief stint at Medium uh, in contract form. Uh, we decided to, that, that we went, so I went back to Medium. Um, and uh, we worked a little bit and as we we're building it, we go, Hey, like this would be cool, a uh, version of medium, but for companies, um, like an internal version because medium had one. And so we go, okay, let's go and build that. And we got funding, um, you know, to, to go and try and do that. Um, I'm not, a, you know, ultimately, you know, he's an amazing designer. He has a startup now called uh, Sonar, um, which is really fun. And, you know, I'm an engineer. We both try we do both do product but we're not sales nor are we good at distribution and so 
um, you know, we were building this product that was kind of like a long form version of, of Slack or something like that. And, um, you know, it's hard to get off the ground and get companies to, to sign up for it. But um, that, that, that was the product. Yeah. And so it was another, another learning experience. And I think what's great about you is that you go out and you try all these things that you were saying earlier on that, you know, the only way to learn is to try. And we touched on earlier that you have this YouTube channel. And I know that, you know, I, I found a tweet actually from 2016, which you wrote, which was, um, it said this, it said the influencer economy, marketplaces, platforms for influencers to be, uh, more easily monetize their time. We'll see more of this. And I think, you know, there are quite a few things that you've been ahead of your time on and you don't always get it right, as does anyone. But I wanted to ask you, what what do you think is next? Like, what are you excited about in the tech field in the next like five to 10 years? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it's a really hard question for me to answer because the struggle that I have today is that there are too many interesting and cool things that just keep popping up right? There's the new hotness of, you know, NFTs and, and crypto and all that. And there's this whole space. And I want to say, man, I'm so excited about that. I can't wait. But I'm really just kind of a little confused about what, you know, where the dust is going to settle um, on, on, on things like that. I just don't have a good answer to this. There are so many interesting things. I think for me, one thing that I'm really interested in is just how much more time we are spending our lives online and in this space, this digital space, people, and I'm going to sound so cliche and kind of ridiculous, but, you know, the fact that we are building toward this metaverse space where, you know, we're working online, we're, we're, we're socializing online, we're conducting business online, we're starting to just blur the lines there of, you know, art is now obviously being sold online and for mass amounts of money. And so it's just, we're just pulling everything a lot of things from from real life into this this uh, world of abundance, infinite abundance, and and ultimately I think wealth for people. And so anyway, that whole world is very fascinating to me because it collides with my experience and my love of video games. And I think that video games are the things that are pushing us and leading us, at least at the forefront, uh, in, into that space. And that's something I'm really interested in. I don't think this will be like a one company takes all sort of thing. I think. It'll be a, it's a it's the platform that we are building toward, um, you know, once it's it's able to, you know, you're able to buy and sell Bitcoin at lightning speed at 60 times per second or something, you know, the, the tick rate of a simulation of a game like that's when real business starts to move online. And and I think that I think we'll get there and we're building toward that. And and that's fascinating. I think it'll, it'll it's one of those things where it'll be here. It's like it comes gradually and then suddenly um, and like and then. So yeah, so uh, yeah, so I'm just really excited about that. Where I'm struggling is where do I fit in with that, and how can I help best um, build that, or at least be, take a part in that in that space in that world. Um, and so that's just something I've been thinking a lot about. And I'll just talk about the really quick existentially. I think as we get older, like it becomes much at least for me. I'm like, what should I spend my time on? Because there are so many things that I can spend my time on, and so many things that I want to do, just not enough hours in a day. And I, and I oscillate between, you know, jumping between hobbies and trying out, you know, new things and, and learning new technologies and then just trying to be present in the moment and be happy with, you know, the fact that, you know, just, just being um, and, and not worrying too much about, you know, what's going on around me. Um, anyway, that was a long-winded answer. No, it was a good, I, I found it really interesting, actually, because I think one thing that we haven't mentioned, which I have been talking a lot to people about, is the pandemic 
And I think a lot of what you just said has been almost kind of escalated because of the pandemic. So mm-hmm. we've been online a lot more, we've been into gaming a lot more, and we're, we're more kind of trying to earn money online. And I interviewed Philip Rosedale mm-hmm. um, in the first series, and he was the founder of Second Life. And we were talking about things like that. So it's really interesting. Um, I've just got one more question because I could talk to you for hours about lots of different things. And I think it'd be really nice to kind of revisit and and focus more on specific things that we've discussed here. But one thing I want to ask you just before you go is if you could go back in time. So when you were younger and you were looking at the window at school, thinking about the games that you could be making, what is one piece of advice that you would offer a younger David? I would simply encourage myself, right? Um it's hard. It's hard to give myself advice because I don't know if I would change anything, right? This is a tough question for me. If I went back, if I was able to go back and give myself advice, I, I fear that that might change the trajectory of, of where I, of, of my experiences. And I'm not so sure like I would want to do that, right? Um, so maybe I'm like being a little bit more meta and, and or avoiding the question um, because I think I would just give myself a sense of encouragement because I never really knew if I was doing the right thing. I was always looking over my shoulder um and questioning if i was on the right track if i was doing the right thing and i and i can't eloquently give myself the 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 right phrasing but i would want to find my find find a way to encourage myself to not worry about what others think not worry about making my dad proud or or other people proud and and or proving to anyone anything and just following my passion and and just just doing what i loved you know i think that was the main the main thing yeah that, that was it. I would just want to re, re- encourage young David um, to keep going and to push forward because I was, you know, I was following my own path. And I think, I think that was, that was a good thing. I think so too. Thank you so much for your time, David. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks so much for listening to my interview with David Baitel. An eternal thanks to David for being so open and honest in this conversation. I know the experience and lessons he has shared here will resonate with so many because despite living at a time where entrepreneurial hustle and grind are celebrated, even promoted, there is another side to running a business, one which is often kept behind closed doors and can only be fully understood when experienced firsthand. The most important lesson I took from this interview was that failure is not final and that failure is very much perception. Did Secret fail? Did David fail as a founder? After Secret shut down and investor money was returned, David went on to launch a blog publishing tool for enterprises called Bold, which was then acquired by Postmates. And David's career has gone on to soar to new heights. So, whatever happened with Secret, and however David may have felt at the time, his path was to continue on and upwards, and I think that's the overriding message here. As Marcus Aurelius once said, just as nature takes every obstacle, every impediment, and works around it, turns it to its purposes, incorporates it into itself, so too a rational being can turn each setback into raw material and use it to achieve its goal.'"